the History Channel original podcast. History This Week, August 8th, 1974. I'm Sally Helm. Good evening. This is the 37th time I have spoken to you from this office. Tonight will be the last time that President Richard Nixon speaks to the American people from the Oval Office. He sits in front of a bluish curtain between two flags, looking down at the pages of his speech. Nixon has come to the end of the road, much as he hates to admit it. I have never been a quitter. To leave office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. But, he says, he has to put the American people first. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. This moment, Nixon's decision, this whole speech, they all now seem inevitable. Of course, President Richard Nixon resigned because of the Watergate scandal. What else could he have done? But that is not the feeling inside the White House in August of 1974. Nixon is making the hardest decision of his life. And he's acting erratic. He's not sleeping. He's pacing the halls, literally muttering to the portraits of the former presidents, trying to figure out what to do. Resign or not resign. His speechwriter would later write, on this most final, most personal decision of his presidency, Nixon obviously was going to keep reassessing, keep re-examining, possibly reverse himself. Things are so uncertain that there is an alternative speech by Nixon's speechwriter on the president's desk. It makes an argument against his resignation, the exact opposite of the speech he'll eventually give. Today, we bring you a conversation with Jeff Nussbaum, political speechwriter and author of the book Undelivered. We look at the speech Nixon never gave and at two other historical speeches that went undelivered. What did it feel like to be the person looking at those two drafts, facing an uncertain future? And if those speeches had been delivered, how might the world have been different? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Jeff Nussbaum, welcome to the show. Oh, it's good to be with you. So, Jeff, you have been a speechwriter for more than 20 years. Is that right? <laughs> that, that is painfully correct. <laughs> So you have written speeches for President Biden, for Vice President Al Gore, for all kinds of people. The book that you've recently published is called Undelivered, and it is about speeches in history that were never given. And I'm wondering, is there something specific that like inspired you to write that book? What sent you down that path? 
Oh, sure. Like comedy, it came from pain. <laughs> I started as a speechwriter to Al Gore. I was a kid, you know, I was the junior person. But on election night in 2000, Al Gore had three speeches. He had a victory speech, he had a concession speech, and then he had a, a slight modification should he win the Electoral College and lose the popular vote. And that night he gave none of those speeches because Florida was too close to call and we went to this protracted recount and I lost those. I had them and I lost them. Oh man, were you like shaking your fist at former Jeff for losing those three speeches that you had in your hand? You're oh. like, I was right there. I mean, shaking my fist is like too gentle. Like I, <laughs> I was really beating myself up. I went back and I found the teleprompter operator from election night 2000 and like went into the old machine to see if any of them were still loaded on. Wow. And no luck. No luck. But it set me on this journey that was kind of my own little obsession, which is what are the other places in history where an outcome was so in doubt or two outcomes were so equally plausible or possible that there was a draft prepared for each of them. And that when history pivoted or a decision got made, that alternate draft got left on the cutting room floor. And I found them in all sorts of interesting places, you know, not just elections, as I said, but issues of war and peace, pop cultural moments like the Academy Awards, all over the place. And so I found and compiled, and that's what this book really grew from. Yeah. How did you find them? How did you track these speeches down? Each one was its own journey. I have a chapter in the book on New York City nearly going bankrupt. And some of the people involved in that were still alive. I interviewed them. Each one of them referred me to the next person, to the next person. No one had the speech. Finally, I found the young lawyer who had prepared the bankruptcy filing, and he invited me to his office. And at one point, his, his assistant tapped me on the shoulder and said, I think I might have what you're looking for. And out of a dusty filing cabinet, she pulled the only existing copy of the speech declaring New York City bankrupt. So each one was a journey, and not all of them yielded fruit. Okay, but you did find a bunch of them, and we're going to talk about three. Your book is organized into several sections, and they're based around reasons that the speeches were not given. So, like, sometimes a major world event intervenes, sometimes a person dies before they have the chance to give this speech. But we're going to start with a person who changed their mind. We're going to start with Richard Nixon. So let's set the scene a little bit. Where do we find Nixon and his team in the summer of 1974 when all these drafts are, are flying? So for Nixon, at that point, the writing is on the wall. His support is cratering in the House and Senate. It seems clear he's going to be impeached and he's going to face a trial in the Senate. And he is having to release all of these secret tapes. And once those tapes become released, it's going to look even worse for him. And some of his closest advisors think, you know, spare yourself, spare the country. It's time to get out. You're not going to survive this. And even Nixon knows to a certain extent that he's not going to survive it. But the chapter, I really started as an opportunity to go back 22 years earlier to 1952, when Nixon is again in trouble first time in his career. He's on Eisenhower's ticket as vice president, and he's involved in a fundraising scandal. And he fears, rightly, that Eisenhower doesn't like him and wants an excuse to kick him off the ticket. And so he takes the decision out of Eisenhower's hands by delivering a speech that's come to be known as the Checkers speech. It's really like a seminal moment in American politics because it's this incredibly plain-spoken speech where he lays out his family's finances for all to see. 
Well, in addition to the mortgage, the $20,000 mortgage on the house in Washington, the $10,000 one on the house in Whittier, I owe $4,500 to the Riggs Bank in Washington, D.C., with interest 4.5%. He doesn't have much in, in the way of savings, and he lists that out. I own a 1950 Oldsmobile car. We have our furniture. We have no stocks and bonds of any type. He basically takes the grievances of the American working person, the financial grievances, and makes them his own. His wife has a cloth coat, or as he calls it, a Republican cloth coat, not a mink coat. And I always tell her that she'd look good in anything. Right? He's not above his constituents. He's one of them. It sounds like the kind of thing that would be familiar now. He sort of lays himself bare for the American public. But you're saying that mode of speech writing and speech giving was new, was unusual. Totally unusual. In fact, commentators absolutely derided it. They, they called it a financial striptease. They said he debased himself for the American people. And the reason it's called the, the checkers speech is that he ends it by saying, look, there is one gift we received and we're not giving it back. And it's a little dog. And the dog's name is Checkers. A little cocker spaniel dog in a crate that he'd sent all the way from Texas. Black and white, spotted. And you know, the kids, like all kids, love the dog. Now, a lot of the speech was a lie. He hadn't met the dog at that point. You know, the story of the dog wasn't quite accurate. All he's trying to do is take the decision out of Eisenhower's hands and get the American people to say, you should keep this guy on the ticket. Every good speech has a call to action, and he calls people to action by asking them to write to the Republican National Committee. And when he finishes the speech, he goes off stage, and he's fuming because he forgot to give the address. And yet, by the hundreds of thousands, people wrote to the RNC, keep Nixon on the ticket, keep Nixon on the ticket. And Eisenhower was furious because his hands really were tied. He had to keep Nixon on the ticket at that point, and he did. This is Nixon's formative experience. If I can just go directly to the American people, explain what happened, explain what I'm all about, maybe I can weasel my way out of this. Well, yeah, so he's facing this terrible crisis, of course, and you're saying he has in his mind a sense that if he just speaks to the American people in a candid way, like he did in that famous Checkers speech, then maybe he'll be able to convince them to stay on his side. Like, the stakes are extremely high, and he believes that he could do it. Like, he believes that a speech could do it. Absolutely. So he calls on his, his chief speechwriter, who at the time was a guy named Ray Price, and he wants to write a speech saying that he will not resign. So tell me about that speech. What is it like? What kind of arguments does the writer make? And how is it similar to, like, other speeches he's given before? Yeah, so he, he kind of readopts this tone of the 1952 Checkers speech and updates it. You know, there's language like, speaking of the Watergate break-in, I thought the break-in itself was stupid as well as wrong. But once it had taken place, I knew that I had inherited the consequences. So it's just very, very plain spoken. He talks about that he's reviewed all of the tapes that he's had to turn over to the judge and says, I've also come across a new piece of evidence that I know won't help my case. Right, which is very honest. And one of the things we know in persuasion is that the best way to convince someone who disagrees with you is to often to concede that they have a point. So here he's conceding his critics a point like, yeah, this doesn't look good for me, but let me explain why my staying in office and seeing this through to the end is the most important thing. 
Can you read part of it? Sure. If I were to resign, it would spare the country additional months consumed with the ordeal of a presidential impeachment and trial. But it would leave unresolved the questions that have already cost the country so much in anguish, division, and uncertainty. More important, it would leave a permanent crack in our constitutional structure. It would establish the principle that under pressure, a president could be removed from office by means short of those provided by the Constitution. By establishing that principle, it would invite such pressures on every future president who might, for whatever reason, fall into a period of unpopularity. Wow, interesting. So that's kind of the nut of his argument in this speech that he didn't give. Right. If I resign, that's a constitutional crisis, sort of, is what he's implying. Exactly. So this is the speech that his speechwriter puts together for him for the refusal to resign option. And that's what Nixon thinks he's going to do. But you write in the book that the speechwriter also puts together another speech that he was not asked to write. Can you tell me about that, about the option B speech? Yes, exactly. So Ray Price also feels that the refusal to resign course is not the right course. And so he takes it upon himself to write a resignation speech. And he says later in his memoir that he's kind of guessing at what's in Nixon's head. And his hope is that by putting together a resignation speech that appeals both to Nixon's sense of grievance, but also to a sense of accomplishment, that maybe Nixon will choose that course. And one of the things you see in both speeches is that they both share a justification in search of a decision. And by that, I mean, in each speech, the idea is, or one of the ideas, is that America's been through a terrible time of upheaval culminating, you know, as we reach the mid-70s. You've had a president assassinated in President Kennedy. Um, you've had a president effectively drummed out of office in Lyndon Johnson. You have chaos and violence in the streets. And so what we need most in this country is stability. And so Nixon is basically saying in the non-resignation speech, and therefore, for reasons of stability, we need to turn back to the Constitution and see this process to the end. And in the resignation speech, he's saying, therefore, for reasons of stability, I'm resigning so we can get back to normal. It's such a funny way to have to try to convince someone to not give your own argument about why they should do it, but give them their argument, like what they would say if they went with what you, the speechwriter, want, right? Like, it's an odd position. It really gets at the core strangeness of the job. There are people who approach the job of speechwriter in a bunch of different ways. There are some who believe that their job is to lead the person they're writing for, to sort of put ideas out there and hope that the person they're writing for will follow. There's some who attempt to chase the person they're writing for. In other words, they look at what the person they're writing for has said before, and they kind of bring that back and then and modify it. And then there's hmm. the third approach, which I believe to be the right one, which is you really want to just help them be their best self. It's not about the writer. It's about helping the person you're writing for articulate most clearly the best version of themselves. Because you have to kind of like ventriloquize this person, like speak in their voice. Exactly. You kind of have to be a method actor. That option B speech, do you think it was a good speech? And how do you think it compared to the ultimate resignation speech that President Nixon, of course, did give? The option B speech, as originally written, was pretty defensive. 
Ray Price, the speechwriter, I think in trying to appeal to Nixon, was trying to appeal to the part of Nixon who wanted at least to rebut all of the arguments against him. He wanted to trumpet his accomplishments. He wanted to clap back a little bit at his detractors. And the ultimate resignation speech is far less defensive. It's far more reflective. It has more of an elevated tone. For example, he says, quote, the interest of the nation must always come before any personal considerations. To continue to fight through the months ahead for my personal vindication would almost totally absorb the time and attention of both the president and the Congress. It celebrates accomplishments like opening diplomatic relations with China. It reminds Americans about the full sweep of Nixon's service. Together with the Soviet Union, we have made the crucial breakthroughs that have begun the process of limiting nuclear arms. In that moment, he kind of recognizes that it's a statement for posterity, and it actually isn't just about the Watergate break-in. It's a coda to a full life of service. After the break, we cover two more speeches that were never given, one by an American general, another by a presidential runner-up. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Let's move on now from a person changing their mind and so throwing out one speech and going with another. And let's look at a moment where a world event goes away that was impossible to anticipate beforehand. This is General Dwight D. Eisenhower and his alternative D-Day speech. Yeah, so here we are on the eve, potentially, of D-Day. And Eisenhower does think it's going to work. He's got over 150,000 troops, you know, marshaled in the southern part of England, He thinks he has a good plan. And the lengths to which they've gone to keep it secret are unbelievable. You know, once the troops were given their orders in these camps, barbed wire was put around the camps so no one could leave. The map makers at Eisenhower's headquarters, they finished this map, it's up there on the wall, and then they locked up the map makers in the house. I mean, they had done everything they could. And the one thing that wasn't cooperating was the weather. There were high seas, there were storms, and Eisenhower we know from his journal, wasn't so worried that we wouldn't be able to get our troops ashore. He was worried that they'd be stranded there, pinned down and stranded. And so Eisenhower did something he had done traditionally before every engagement where he sent troops into battle, which is he sat down 
and he wrote an apology for the failure. He anticipated failure, he envisioned failure, and he apologizes for it. And that's the D-Day failure speech that exists to this day. This is a little bit trying to read someone's mind, but when Eisenhower sits down to write that speech, I mean, what do you imagine that feels like to him? Like, do you think it sort of feels like tempting fate to write about the version where things go badly? Or do you think it might feel like protective to imagine all the worst ways things could go? Like, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. I spent a lot of time trying to figure out when in that day he had time to write it. And it's not exactly clear, but my best guess is he earlier that day, he went to see the paratroopers off and he had a real sort of emotional moment with them. He knew that young men, almost boys, were going to die. And my best guess is that he was writing this as he saw our first wave of paratroopers leaving overhead. That that was the moment in the day where he had a tiny bit of free time. And so in my mind, I picture that. In his head, I think that he wrote the apologies to do a final pressure test as to whether he had put in all the thought and energy required to prevent that outcome. To say, did I do everything to make it so that I'm unlikely to have to deliver this speech? Right, and projecting myself forward, if I did have to say these words, could I stand behind the decision that I'm about to make, the decision that I haven't fully made yet, but that I'm about to. Exactly. So Eisenhower sits down and he really, he writes quite quickly a failure speech. It's just a paragraph or two long. And we have the original draft. One of the interesting things he does is that he goes back and he makes a couple of corrections. He corrects two things. He has first written, the troops have been withdrawn. And he crosses it out and he writes, I have withdrawn the troops. And then he has written this particular operation, and he crosses that out and substitutes my decision to attack. And I love it because what he's done is he's removed the passive voice, right? The passive voice is mistakes were made. Right, like not saying who made the mistakes. Exactly. But he doesn't say mistakes were made. He says, this is on me. This is 100% on me. And, And as if to underscore that, literally, at the end of it, he writes... If any blame or fault attaches to the attempt, it is mine alone, and he underlines mine alone. And the underline you can see in the pen stroke, the emphasis, it's just a wonderful demonstration of the language of responsibility. And by the way, so the story is what happens is he writes it, he folds it up, he puts it in his wallet, the operation proceeds, the outcome is not really in doubt, but it takes a couple of weeks for things to sort themselves out. He looks in his wallet, he sees he has this, he throws it in the trash, and his aide fishes this one out of the trash and says, you know, like, this one's a keeper. Huh, and future Jeff Nussbaum breathes a sigh of relief. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Will you read it for us? What does it say? Our landings in the Cherbourg Havre area have failed to gain a satisfactory foothold, and I have withdrawn the troops. My decision to attack at this time and place was based on the best information available. The troops, the air, and the Navy did all that bravery and devotion to duty could do. If any blame or fault attaches to the attempt, it is mine alone. Wow, it's so short. That's it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Gettysburg address-esque. Yeah, yeah. 
the classic phrase, mistakes were made, sort of the classic, like, I'm not taking responsibility. Where does that phrase come from? It was first used in 1876 when President Grant acknowledges but doesn't take responsibility for the scandals of his administration. And and so he says, mistakes have been made, as all can see, and I admit. (laughs) Except he doesn't actually admit. And then, of course, since that time, mistakes were made has become almost a catchphrase, almost a meme, a little bit of a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's seductive. I mean, we can admit mistakes, and who made them? How were they made? Exactly. And, And here, Eisenhower is doing the exact opposite. He's basically saying, it's on me. And in writing this chapter, I found this wonderful quote, ironically, from from President Grant, where he says, I am a verb. And I just loved it because leaders are verbs. Leaders are action takers. And Eisenhower just demonstrated that so wonderfully powerfully. Okay, let us turn now for our last speech to a very recent speech that was not given. And that is the speech that Hillary Clinton would have given in 2016 had she won the presidential election. So you were actually, Jeff, you were the first to get a hold of this speech. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. The first person outside of her immediate orbit. And how I came about, (laughs) how I was able to get a hold of it is actually kind of a funny story. One of the chapters in this book that we have not discussed, um, but I mentioned is, is the night New York City went bankrupt or almost went bankrupt. And that night was the night of a famous dinner called the Al Smith Dinner, where all of New York's kind of leading business and political elites are all in the room together. And so part of the story about the night New York almost went bankrupt is that all of the players were in the room together and they were all a little bit overserved and tipsy, but like sort of pulling each other into hallways to say like, will you buy these bonds? Can you do this for the pension? Like, so it was all happening that night. Fast forward to Hillary's campaign, and I was not particularly involved with the campaign. I sort of helped oversee speech writing for the convention and was pulled in just a little bit to help out with her Al Smith speech. And at one point during the prep process, she said, am I the first woman to speak at this dinner? And I said, actually not. It was Ella Grasso, governor of Connecticut back in the mid 70s. And she kind of looked at me like, how in the world would that be a piece of trivia that you know? <laughs> and I said, well, actually, that was the night New York City almost went bankrupt and I have this undelivered speech. And she said, oh, well, when this election's over, maybe we can talk about my giving you the speech that I don't give. Oh, wow. I mean, you get the speech ultimately from her after, of course, the dust has settled. But let's set the scene before all of this happens earlier in 2016. What do Hillary Clinton and her speechwriters want her victory speech to accomplish? What are the different tacks they think they might take? Yeah, that was really the question is, what do we need to have this speech accomplish? The initial draft of the speech, all of the fissures that ran through the campaign run right into that draft. You know, here's a line for the Bernie supporters. And here's something to hopefully pacify the Trump voters. And here's a line for the elite media that expected a bigger win. And here's a line for the people who have, who have been my base. This is a win. This is a moment for America that she made history. And so it's all in there, but it all feels like it's in there, right? And one of the things we talk about in, in speech writing is, is a speech that's about everything. This is a speech that isn't about anything. And so it's trying to do a lot and it's missing a real moment of emotional lift. How did they find it? What did they do? 
So Hillary had said in her convention speech, you know, she's always been a public servant. She's had a harder time with the public part of that than with the servant part of it. She wasn't always sharing or revealing herself. But one of the stories that she had been willing to share was the really difficult life of her mother. Her mother had been abandoned by her parents, sent across the country to live with her grandparents, who basically rented her into indentured servitude, you know, as, as a housemaid and others. And this had been one of the touchstones that in the space of one generation, you're going to go from this very difficult life to a daughter, a daughter who's president in the United States. So Hillary has been thinking about this and talking about this. And at the same time, when you're a speechwriter, you get all sorts of unsolicited emails. They, they, they come in left and right. People saying, say this, say this. This will Say this. If you just say this, it'll solve all your problems. <laughs> like, I got the solution. It's this paragraph. <laughs> and so one that comes in is from a poet, a Pulitzer Prize winning poet named Jory Graham. And Jory Graham basically says, you know, if, if I was Hillary... I would say this, and it's this imagined conversation where an adult Hillary comes upon her mother at age eight on this train cross country, and she sits down next to her mother. And it's just this beautiful imagined conversation. And at the same time, Hillary is saying, maybe there's a new version of the mother story I can tell. And so it's this moment of kind of convergent alchemy where Hillary's instinct and this beautiful poetic submission link up. And let me read just a little bit of it. Sometimes I think about her on that train. I wish I could walk down the aisle and find the little wooden seats where she sat, holding tight to her even younger sister, alone, terrified. She doesn't yet know how much she will suffer, she doesn't yet know she will find the strength to escape that suffering. That is still a long way off. The whole future is still unknown as she stares out at the vast country moving past her. I dream of going up to her and sitting down next to her, taking her in my arms and saying, look at me, listen to me. You will survive. You will have a good family of your own and three children. And as hard as it might be to imagine, your daughter will grow up and become the president of the United States. I am as sure of this as anything I have ever known. America is the greatest country in the world. And from tonight, going forward, together we will make America even greater than it has been for each and every one of us. I mean, this is the speech she wanted to give, of course, the speech she would have given if things had gone differently. But the speech that she does give is a concession speech. Can you tell me a little bit about the concession speech as a type of speech? Rick Hertzberg in The New Yorker gives this lovely list of what a concession speech is supposed to contain, you know, an acknowledgement of the pain of defeat, a message of congratulations to the victor, a pledge to close ranks behind the people's choice. Right, you're like reading it like a laundry list. It's like there's a little bit of a formula to them. Yeah. Does Hillary's follow that or not? Well, so this is an interesting thing, which is Hillary had sort of a cursory your generally friendly concession speech prepared. But late that night, 
when she realized that the election wasn't going to go her way. She saw the draft that did all those things and just felt that it wasn't up to the task that a normal concession in normal times makes normal sense. But she had been involved in an abnormal candidacy. And so she wanted to go a little deeper and not just congratulate the winner, but basically say, like, we'll be watching and we'll be holding you to account. So she toughened it up in a lot of ways. And she also did something that speaks a little bit to gender. She's the first presidential candidate to say, I'm sorry, in a concession speech. This is not the outcome we wanted or we worked so hard for. And I'm sorry that we did not win this election for the values we share and the vision we hold for our country. I want to pull back for a minute now. One thing that really strikes me that must have struck you a million times as you were working on this project is that like these speeches do feel like they're kind of artifacts from an alternate reality, you know? Like you can feel in each moment, wow, Nixon almost did not resign. He was just one person making that decision and he could have made the other decision. And D-Day could have failed. Like the weather was the thing, you know? You can't control the weather. And I guess like, I don't know, it's interesting to me because when I'm interviewing historians, I often want to ask them to play around with like alternate versions of reality. Oh, and they of, hate they hate doing it. They hate it, right? Exactly. They never want to. They're like, we don't know. We can't know. And so I, I want to ask you because you've lived in some of those alternate realities, the sort of what what might have changed if this had gone differently. What do you think we can learn from that? Like, what have you learned from doing that? So um, I, I also had a similar experience because I spoke to a conference of historians and one of the historians raised their hand and said, are you worried that you're writing an alternative history? And I kind of said, it never occurred to me to worry that I was doing that because I'm actually not really writing a counterfactual history. What I'm showing is like sort of shining a flashlight, the first steps down an alternate path. It's an alternate path that the people who were in charge of blazing that trail had to imagine themselves. And ultimately, my takeaway, because there are other chapters in this book, like John F. Kennedy announcing airstrikes on Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis, or Emperor Hirohito at the end of World War II, uh, apologizing for the war and throwing himself at the mercy of the War Crimes Tribunal. There are massive life-and-death events, history-changing events, history-making events, and we think that things happen in retrospect because that's how they had to happen. That's how they were going to happen. And the thing I realized as I was writing this book is that that's not how it works. In the moment, history really does rest on a razor's edge. And it's people, hopefully, of competence and good faith, using the positions they have to make the best decisions they can that affect outcomes. And those outcomes can be for a community or a country or a company, or in many cases in this book, the world. And so the lesson I take away from the book and that I share with folks who ask about the book is don't forget that, that history often hangs in the balance. And it's people of good faith who often nudge it in ways that make a meaningful difference in the outcome. Jeff, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, it's such a pleasure. This has been really fun. Thanks for listening to History This Week. 
For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweek@history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. Special thanks to our guest, Jeff Nussbaum, author of Undelivered, the never-heard speeches that would have rewritten history. This episode was produced by Julia Press. It was story edited by Jim O'Grady, fact-checked by Nate Barksdale, and sound designed by Dan Rosato. History This Week is also produced by Corinne Wallace, Chloe Weiner, and me, Sally Helm. Our associate producers are Hazel May and Jonah Buchanan. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you next week. Copyright 2023, A&E Television Networks, LLC. All rights reserved.